church and the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much, that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Sharon George. Good morning. Welcome this morning. Uh, as you tunneled out of your snow. Uh, the only good thing I like about snow is I get to use my snowblower. That's just a joy, just to get out there and just see that snow fly. So I did that this morning, and so I got a good morning, a good start. And I also say it's good for the farmers. Growing up in the farm, the farm people love that. So cheers for the farmers this morning. We're in the uh, study of the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. Sharon read for us the passage this morning. Just a couple of weeks ago, uh, no, a couple of months ago, in January of this year, we were in Death Valley. Anybody ever been through Death Valley? Oh, yeah, a few people. Uh, it's in the, uh, it's uh, west of Las Vegas, east of Los Angeles, somewhere in that corridor there, Death Valley. And in the middle of uh, Death Valley, deep in the Mojave Desert, there is a 14-square-mile piece of desert that looks just like the Sahara Desert. About 14 square miles. And uh, it's, it's so unlike the rest of the desert in the Mojave uh, Desert area. And you can take your snowboard and, or your sandboard and go boarding on the sand. And we watched many people doing that. gets very, very hot in the summer, as you can imagine. The hottest air temperature ever recorded in Death Valley was 134 degrees Fahrenheit, or about 56.7 degrees Celsius. That's pretty hot. I was in Dubai years ago, and it was 52. I know what hot is, but 57. It's the hottest atmospheric temperature ever recorded on Earth, and it's in the, de uh, the Death Valley area. And this is in the shade, of course. It's in the shade. So while we were there, there was a gentleman who told us that he was a leader in the Boy Scout organization and that he would regularly take his boys to this spot and they would camp out, not in the summer, but in the wintertime. And he told the story of a young lady from Germany who lost her sandals uh, somehow uh, in the middle of these 14 uh, square miles. Uh, and it was the summertime, and she had to walk out in the middle of summer. 
And that sand is so unbearably hot, so unbearably hot, no match for bare feet. Her feet were so badly burned that, uh, well, it was tragic. They had to amputate uh, one of her feet. Very tragic story. Death Valley is by no means a place where you want to be without shade and water in the middle of the summer. The heat is unforgiving. Well, when we were in Death Valley a couple of months ago, we came to the lowest spot in the United States. Well, probably in all of North America, it is 280 feet below sea level. There is a huge salt basin below sea level called the Badwater Basin. It's named that because the water is bad. You can't drink it. Uh, it's kind of like the Dead Sea in Israel, but without all the water. And so there was a very adventuresome lady who walked out into the basin, and she did not turn into a pillar of salt like Lot's wife. I think she just needed a pair of skates. Uh, she was having fun. This is the lowest place in North America. And what I discovered later was the fact that the highest place in the United States, not including Alaska, is only about 80 miles to the northwest, uh, and it's a mountain range, and it's a mountain called Mount Whitney uh, in California. The elevation of Mount Whitney is about 14,495 feet. What a contrast. Can you see it? From the top of the world, Mount Whitney, to the bottom of the world, Death Valley. What a contrast from one location, which is always very cool, uh, to the other location, which is often relentlessly hot. From Mount Whitney, you have a panoramic view of the Sierra Nevadas and the Mojave Desert, and what a spot looking down on the beautiful turquoise lakes and the emerald forests. Uh, beautiful. And then the view from Death Valley, well, you really can't see too much. Uh, you kind of look up to the rest of the world. So I want to give you a brief tour of the first ten verses of Ephesians 2. And we start in the lowest valley... It's not the Badwater Basin, but it must be awful close to it. <laughs> but it could certainly have the title bad. We start with the reality of our, of our condition, and honestly, the descriptors are not very attractive. And then we come to a couple of words that immediately take us to the mountaintops. Only two words, the title of the sermon, but God but God. We're escorted into the heavenlies. We're made aware of our being raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenlies. Oh my, it's a contrast. The landscape of Ephesians 2, from the lowest of low to the highest of high, and that's the story of this chapter. Let's look at the valley first. And by, way, by the way, this sermon is not politically correct. I'm glad for that. I'm okay with that. Uh, it's the text. But it's not your real popular subject to talk about. Uh, and you can gather that from the first four words. Once you were 
dead. Oh, wow. Thank you very much. You were dead. Deadness was our life. We were like zombies in a dead world, in a lost estate. I looked up what a zombie is, because you hear that word a lot these days, right? And it's kind of offensive. It is a frightening creature that is a dead person who has been brought back to life, but without human qualities. (laughs) Who wants to be a zombie? A zombie. We were once hopeless. We were once distant. We were once removed from any hope of ever reaching Mount Whitney. We were in the valley of sin, and we were dead. We were dead. Now, it might be helpful to look at the passage from this point of view. Number one, what was our condition? Number two, uh, what did God do? And number three, why did he do it? And that's really the text. So, number one, what was our condition? Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers, in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. What was our condition? Once you were dead. Once you were dead. A couple uh, have a little uh, daughter. Their name is Shauna. And uh, she's a very strong-willed kid. When she was about four years old, uh, she rode her little trike out on the street. And her mom was infuriated that she was riding on the street. So she marched out there. She said, Shauna, you cannot ride on the street. Here's the edge of the sidewalk. Here's the driveway edge. Here is the tree back here. You can drive your trike anywhere in that area, but you cannot go out onto the street. She said, I'm going to go back into the house, but I've got a big picture window here, and I'm going to watch you, and if you go outside of that boundary, I'm going to spank you. Well, little Shauna was not intimidated. She stuck her little hip out and pointed to it and said, Well, you better spank me now because I got places to go. (laughs) And this is a picture of the human heart. This is a picture of the human condition. And Paul just came right out and said it. You were dead. For a few years, I attended a rural school. Uh, one teacher, some of you have, have, have done this as well, one teacher and eight grades. And at times, our teacher would get so exercised at us that uh, she would just throw the chalk brush down. She would look at us and say, you're dead, dying, gone. And, and, and I know we got her mad. We got her mad often. And, I, and she would say that repeatedly. But it almost always made me go into analysis mode, like, you're dead, dying, gone. Why why did you say it that way? Why didn't you say, you're dying, you're dead, and you're gone? I'm sure she didn't want me to be thinking about that, but that's what I was thinking about. Paul says, you're dead. And in verses 2 and 3, dead is explained. The verses form what could be called the doctrine of total depravity. Paul says it in three verses in chapter 2 of Ephesians. But if you go over to Romans, Paul takes the first three chapters in Romans 
to talk about the same thing, the doctrine of sin or the doctrine of total depravity. Aren't you glad we're in Ephesians? What's offensive about this is the fact that we look very much alive. You look good. You look good. We've been eating healthy, right? Trying to. Exercising a little bit. Getting enough sleep, hopefully. We're the picture of health. You look good. We don't look like zombies. But yet Paul says that we're dead. All of us, all of us, that we're all dead. It includes those who look most alive. Because when you take an x-ray of the soul, of the heart, this is the condition of every person. We are all dead spiritually. Yes, alive physically, but dead spiritually. It is the condition of the heart. And Paul really wants to say dead, not a little dead or half dead or exhausted or somewhat wasted. He means dead, just like a dead body resting six feet under, completely incapable of ever getting out. Dead, dying, gone. Here's how Eugene Peterson phrased it in the message. Just pay attention to these words. It wasn't so long ago that you were mired in that old stagnant life of sin. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and then exhaled disobedience. We all did it. All of us doing what we felt like doing when we felt like doing it. All of us in the same boat. It's a wonder God didn't lose his temper and do away with a whole lot of us. Wow, Eugene Peterson. What does the x-ray of the soul reveal? Well, first of all, we've been impacted by the world. We've been impacted by the world or the cosmos. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world. The, the word world or cosmos is used 186 times in the New Testament. I didn't count them, but that's what I read. And it always has an evil connotation. Those without Christ are captive to the value system of the present evil age, which is hostile to Christ. The age in which we live doesn't bring us to Christ. <clears throat> Wouldn't that be cool if we lived in this world and there was an automatic kind of magnetic pull towards Christ? But when you live in the world... There is a, a pull away from Christ. The cosmos never cheers us on. The world never cheers us on to Christ. But that's the reality of our existence. We need to live in this world, uh, but the reality is, and we just know it, that it never cheers us on towards Christ. Paul says you used to live in sin just like the rest of the cosmos or the world. Secondly, we've been impacted by the devil. Uh, you used to live in sin, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Now, if you think the first part of verse 2 is a downer, look at this. We've been influenced by the devil. Yes, we believe in a literal Satan. And, and literal demons. No, we cannot see them. Yet we sense their influence. 
We sense their influence. And what makes Satan so powerful and so influential is the fact that he can get people to believe that truth is a lie. And he can get people to believe that a lie is the truth. He is a highly specialized professional at this. Amazingly convincing. One person put it this way. He fills the world with temptations and traps and uh, uh, he, he fills the world with temptations and traps and he reigns over his kingdom of darkness like a malevolent dictator oppressing his powerless victims. Satan is described in the scripture as the ruler of this world. John chapter 12 verse 31. He's described as the prince of demons, Matthew 9, 34. He is described as the god of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Kent Hughes writes, He commands innumerable hosts in the unseen world and thus creates a spirit of the age in which he knits just enough good with evil to achieve his purposes. Can I just say that again? It's powerful. He commands innumerable hosts in the unseen world. He has thousands, perhaps millions of demons at his control. And he creates a spirit of the age in which he knits just enough good with evil to achieve his purposes. Wow, he's cunning. He throws in enough good with enough lie, mixes them together, and it looks very, very attractive. Thirdly, we've been impacted by the flesh. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. And just to be clear, by the flesh, Paul does not mean the body, uh, because of itself, the body is not sinful. The flesh refers to the fallen nature that we were born with that wants to control the body and the mind and make us obey God. It's the sinful nature. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard of the story of Jeremy Bentham. He's the father of utilitarianism. Uh, he, the photo, uh, you haven't got the complete photo there, but it, it shows the corpse of this man, Jeremy Bentham. He was a philosopher, philanthropist, uh, and the full picture here is his body sitting in a chair, dressed and hatted in early 19th century gentlemen's wear. Uh, he was embalmed and he was mummified. Uh, so he's sitting in this chair and around him is something like a telephone booth, only much nicer. And he's sitting there and the whole thing is a result of his dark humor. For when he died, he, he gave orders that his entire estate be given to the university hospital in London on the condition that his body be preserved and placed in attendance at all the hospital board meetings. <laughs> what a character he was. And this was duly carried out and every year to this day Bentham is wheeled up to the board table and the chairman says Jeremy Bentham present but not voting. Now this is supposed to be a joke on utilitarianism. Jeremy Bentham will never raise his hand in response. He will never submit a motion. 
because he has been dead for nearly 170 years. Oh, my. Those Brits, they love to joke, don't they? Now, here's the reality of the first three verses. We're all dead. Even though you all look like a picture of health. It's just not true. We're all dead, spiritually speaking, spiritually speaking, and that's our condition. So first, what was our condition? We're dead. I was just reading not too long ago, and I just wrote it in my notes. A quote by Tim Keller, because it just kind of popped. He said, you are worse than you think you are, but also far more loved than you feel you are. He says it very well. You are worse than you think you are, but also far more loved than you feel you are. So it leads us to point number two. What did God do? What did God do? But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you've been saved. Man, are those great words, aren't they? But God, but God. They transport us from the valley, from the Badwater Basin to Mount Whitney. From the valley to the mountaintop, but God. From the deadness of our sin to the aliveness of Jesus, raised from the dead and now seated in the heavenlies. But God, what did God do? He loved us, first of all. He loved us. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much. Basic and beautiful. He loved us. It's who he is. I love that song. It's, you're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. It's who I am. It's who I am. It's who I am. And what does his love look like? Well, it, it becomes very practical. It looks like mercy. His love looks like grace. It takes action. That's how it manifests itself. Love manifests itself in grace. God's unmerited favor, giving to us when we didn't deserve it. It's because he loves us. He, it's because he loves us that he gives us his grace. What did God do? He loved us. Secondly, he made us alive. He made us alive. God saw our condition. God knew the deadness of our hearts. And he launched a rescue mission like no other. He sent his son Jesus, fully human, fully God, to save us from our hopeless, dead condition. And that's the good news of Jesus, that he came into the world. Jesus died on that cross. And three days later, he was raised from the grave. And that resurrection of Jesus has now become our resurrection. That the work of Christ being raised from the dead, the work of Jesus that he was raised from the dead, is now our reality that we too have been raised from the dead and we have been made alive. Amen? Amen. What did God do? He loved us. He made us alive. And thirdly, he seated us in the heavenlies. He seated us in the heavenlies. Now, we don't talk about this as much as we could. He seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. Our physical position, I see you, you're there. That's your physical position, uh, is here on earth. 
But our spiritual position is in the heavenly places in Christ. You know, folks, God's already getting us prepared for heaven. He's getting us ready. We're seated with his son already in the heavenlies, spiritually speaking. We have access to all of his resources. Oh, I, I think sometimes Jesus would want to say, oh, do you know what you have? Do you know how much you can come? Do you know what you can ask me for? Do you know I have all this for you? We have access to his, his resources. His spirit living in us helps us to live in view of the resources granted to us. We are seated with him in the heavenly places. We have access. We'll reign with him. We're part of who, who Christ is in the heavenly places, joint heirs with Christ. It's amazing love. It's amazing grace. There's an amazing presence right now as we live with him and an amazing future to come. Which leads us finally to, why did God do it? Why did God do it? And here's the answer. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. That's why he did it. So he can point to us in the future. Uh, God is pleased to be able to say, you're my trophy of grace. Oh, I am so glad you received my grace. I'm so glad that you are my child forever. I'm so glad you received my love and my grace. Because we didn't deserve it at all. But God. But God. We have nothing to offer but God. It all comes from him. But God gave us his forgiveness. God gave us his grace. He gave us his grace, not because we deserved it, not at all, but because he loved us. And he reached down his hand into the ranks of humanity, and he called your name. And he said, you're mine. You're mine. Isn't that simply awesome? You are mine. Well, you say, I, I could have resisted. Oh, really? Oh, really? That's one of those uh, welcome to the club discussions. Are you sure? When you hear your name, you come. I mean, I know I don't have to twist any arms to get you to come to Christ because I can't. I'm absolutely helpless. I can share with you the good news of Jesus Christ, but I can't twist your arm and say, you have to come. I have no power to do that. Oh, but God can. And God calls your name. And God has you. And God has never met his match. We were sharing in our prayer time this morning uh, about one lady whose, whose brother is, uh, has for a long time been in another uh, religion or cult, but maybe is hearing a little bit of the speaking of the Holy Spirit and, and being drawn towards uh, Jesus. We trust that's true. He said, the most important possible person in your life. You, 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 you've got them in your life, and you say, oh, well, that person, will they ever come to Christ? Is this beyond their scope? How do you connect with them? You just keep telling them the truth. That's your job. And you just keep talking to God about them and allow God to do what he will do. Sometimes you can't talk to them anymore, like a lot. 
You just have to talk to God and let God talk to them. Share the good news in love. Be really patient. Be really encouraging. Talk to God about your loved ones and leave it with him. Leave it with him because it's God who does the calling. Now, some have tried to, to solve the human condition of being dead spiritually by achievement. We want to put in that extra effort in an attempt to say, Hey, Pastor Ken, we're not dead. We're not hopeless. We're not insignificant. So we try harder. We mount a bigger campaign to prove ourselves and our identity. It's not bad to be smart or talented or ambitious. It's not bad to succeed. It's not bad to win. I mean, God can use all of those things that happen in your life for his glory. But they will not save you. Trying to be good enough causes you to over, overwork yourself. You overwork your engine. The alternative to grace is salvation by works. It's the most natural thing in the world to resort to self-help. Good works. To, to try to resurrect a dead heart. There is the feeling that I can be good enough. Just give me a chance here. I can be good enough. I can merit salvation by my own effort. And that theme flows over to most religions and philosophies of the world. I can merit salvation by something that I do. No. But God. But God. But God, he says no. He says there's a better way. It's wrapped up in my love. It's wrapped up in my mercy. It's wrapped up in my grace. Our culture defines what salvation means. And now it has become something economic or something therapeutic. Salvation will come if you are, if you are successful enough. And then we'll be happy enough. And, uh, but there's always that sense that we're not quite there yet. We're not quite there. We're working towards this. We're, we're getting it. So just keep running. Just try a little harder. Just climb a little higher. Just push your kids a little bit more. Let's get them going. In. Push your kids a little bit more. But you can never be successful enough. And you can never be smart enough. Or you can never be talented enough or good enough to achieve salvation. And that's what God is saying to us. You don't need to be. You only need to receive my gift. The deadness is changed to life. The valley is changed to the mountaintop. Not because of works, because of grace. Friends, it's a gift. It's a gift. It's a beautiful gift. It's the gift of grace. It's a gift to you. How do you receive it? Believe. Trust. Acknowledge. Surrender. Say, Lord, ah. <sighs> I simply receive your gift. I can't save myself, but you can save me. You can forgive me. You want to do that. I've never realized it, but you really want to do that. So I believe and I receive. I receive your gift and I trust you. Grace. Grace. It's one of the best words in the Bible. Maybe it's the best word in the Bible. There's so many good words. It's right up there with love. Grace. We all need that word. Grace is unmerited favor. The love of God going out towards the utterly unbelieving. It is a great word. Joyful, adventuresome, 
awesome. Got to tell you one story as we close. At a church where people uh, come to the communion rail, you know, where you come up and kneel and you receive communion, there happened to be two men kneeling together. A former burglar kneeling beside a judge of the Supreme Court. In fact, the judge sent this man to prison for seven years. After the service, the judge said to the pastor, did you notice who was kneeling beside me at the communion rail? The pastor said, yeah, I did. The judge said, what a miracle of grace. The pastor said, you mean the, the conversion of this man who was a thief? No, the judge said, I was not referring to him. I was thinking of myself. And the pastor said, well, I don't understand. The judge replied, it was natural for the thief to receive God's grace when he came out of jail. He had nothing but a history of crime behind him. He knew how much he needed that help. But look at me. I was taught from a small child to live as a gentleman. I was taught that my word was my bond. I went to Oxford, graduated from law school, became a judge. Pastor, now I see it. It was God's grace that drew me. It was God's grace that opened my eyes to see the need, to hear the call, to hear my name, how dead I was inside. I'm a greater miracle of his grace. We live in the midst of beautiful people, beautiful people, successful people, affluent people, people who have it all together, so to speak, but maybe haven't understood their deadness and thus their need. No better place than at the communion table this morning for every one of us, regardless of who we are, no matter where we've come from, to say to the Lord, once I was dead, but now I'm alive because of Jesus. Once I was blind, but now I can see. We've been made alive in Christ. We've been, we've been raised from our deadness. We're no longer dead. We're, we're alive spiritually because we believe. We've been united with Christ and seated in the heavenly realms with Christ. Oh, too wonderful to describe. Come this morning. Be reminded through the bread and the cup of how things changed in our life. But God, but God, but God loves us. Our Father sent his son Jesus to die for us. Our Father raised Jesus from the dead and he's raised us as well. Give thanks as you take the bread and the cup. Just give thanks. This is his work in your life. This is not us earning our way. This is the gift of God given to you. And friends, if you're here this morning and you have never received this gift, this beautiful gift of grace, today would be an awesome day to say, Jesus, I receive you. I receive your gift of salvation, your gift of grace, and your gift of love, and your gift of mercy. Tell him in the quietness of your heart, just whisper it to him, I receive. I receive it. I understand. I understand. I hear you. I feel that sense, Lord, of, of you calling in my life, and I respond. Come, and Lord, take the steering wheel of my life. Those are beautiful words in his ear. Come, take the steering wheel of my life. Lead my life.